Thank you, Alex. Uh, hello. Good morning. Um, if you are someone who's brand new to Sower, you might not know me, um, but I would still love to meet you after the service if you're around. My name is Sam. I am the church plant uh, resident here, uh, which means I'm never here. So, <laughs> so if you recently started attending, you probably haven't met, but I've been tasked to help uh, to plant a church with a great cooperating church uh, located in Bennett, Nebraska, called Country Bible Church. And we've actually got some representatives here uh, from Country Bible today. Um, so if you happen to see them, uh, say hello, give them a big uh, sower uh, welcome. Uh, and because I love them, I'm not going to ask them to stand up or anything like that, because I love them, or wave or anything. But if you see anyone who is, you know, wearing like a light plaid shirt and cowboy boots, or one of them decided actually to wear a nice salmon sweater today. He's the only one in attendance who's, who's doing that, and he pulls it off really well. Um, but make them feel at home. This is the, um, these are some, some amazing guests, some elders who have uh, come uh, with their wives, and so we're so happy to have them today. Um, I'll update you guys a little bit on our church plant. So we're uh, endeavoring to start a church, uh, plant a church in the city of Hickman, and we feel that the Lord has called us to do this because there's not a um, there's not enough gospel presence in that town right now. We need uh, we need the gospel to be there, and the Lord has been raising up some incredible servants. Uh, to bring the gospel there in new and profound ways. And as we look at what the Lord has prepared, it's really amazing. Um, it's obvious that he's had this on his mind infinitely longer than any of us have had it on our mind. And so uh, we're so thankful for that. As we're uh, progressing into things, we are praying about and, and searching for uh, the best possible place that we could all meet. Um, and so you could join us in praying for that. Uh, pray that We'd be able to raise up some leaders. Uh, pray also for just for Country Bible Church in general. It's a difficult task in sending out some of your best uh, leaders. Also, pray for us as we uh, we're trying to, to decide on a good church name, which probably happened this week or so. Um, much to Mike's dismay, we're not going to call it Irrigation Church, which was his first idea. Um, and I also have some insights from uh, Pastor John here. As well, Pastor John said, you need to pick a name uh, that would encourage you to storm the gates of hell. And so we might name it, ah, church or something. <laughs> Probably not. But uh, we thank you all for your, your ongoing prayers uh, for us and for all the support that you've given us. I feel like, man, we must be the most supported uh, church plant out there with all these people who, who care about us. So thank you uh, very much. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll launch into, uh, into the message. So, Father, uh, we thank you for what you've done, for the people that you've brought together, for the work that you've done, for the work that you um, will do. And, Father, we just thank you for bringing us all together uh, for sort of a celebratory uh, Sunday. I pray that you would just use uh, your words here to speak to the hearts of all the people who have come today, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to start off, actually, just where you guys left off last week. And so this is Luke, uh, it's chapter 14, starting in verse 12. And 
uh, Jesus is in the exact same place. He is in a meal that he's been invited to by some Pharisees sitting around the table, uh, and he begins to speak to them. So I'll go ahead and read the first part here. This is starting in verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And as I'm thinking about that, the first time I read that part of the passage, it reminded me right away of the Starbucks pay it forward lines. You ever been stuck in a Starbucks pay it forward line? It started off and it was really kind of cool, like someone would pay for the person behind them. And so then that you get up to the window and they say, your, your drink is free. And you think, wow, that's, that's great, free coffee. Um, but what started to happen is, you know, us culturally, if someone gives us something, we feel like eh, we better just pay it forward. Like now I have to give something to someone else. And so we would have someone pay for the drink behind them and continue and continue and continue on. Uh, and these things would go on for days. And it got really weird after a while, because if we're honest, this is just someone who can afford a luxury coffee drink, buying a luxury coffee drink for someone else who can afford a luxury coffee drink. Um, so it's not really generous at all, but, um, but what would be generous is if they pull up to the, uh, to the window and maybe order a gift card along with their drink. And then the next time they see a friend who maybe can't afford Starbucks, they give them the gift card. So it's like, no, you're actually getting a free coffee. I'm sacrificing something for you. Um, so you can sort of see in, in a first glance at this passage that Jesus is talking about generosity. He's saying, be generous. But when Jesus says something like that, rarely is it just this one little snippet of information. Be generous. Rarely is it just that. And in this situation, he's sort of confronting the Pharisees who would go from house to house together, eating with wealthy people, and they wouldn't have to pay for all the meals themselves because they knew their other wealthy friend would just pay for them when they went to, to his meal. And they could just sort of go round robin and always be eating these expensive, luxurious meals. And they really never had to pay very much for them. They could maintain their wealth. And they never had to invite anyone who they'd actually have to serve. And worse than that, uh, they didn't have to like, invite anyone who they'd be dishonored to be seen with. So someone who's poor, someone who can never afford that meal. But when Jesus is talking to them about inviting people up, he paints this sort of glorious picture about you've been gifted with so much. You are seated at a high place. What I want you to do, though, is to go into the streets and invite those who would never be able to experience this type of luxury. They'd never be able to buy a single meal that you're eating, let alone have it every single week. So he's saying, bring them up into an undeserved grace. And so that's the picture that he's painting here. It's of grace, and it's really a, a beautiful picture of the gospel. Um, so it's beyond just generosity, but in 
uh, the most pure and beautiful form of generosity that we'll ever know, which is the good news. Um, and then some commentators think it got a little bit awkward in the room. We don't know for sure. But a man decided to speak up. Um, maybe he was trying to lighten the mood. Uh, maybe he was just one of those guys who says things. Um, we all know that person. But a uh, man speaks up. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Hmm. Sounds pretty good. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus does something amazing. He takes this comment and he turns it into a question. He says, you say, blessed are all those who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Who will eat bread in the kingdom of God? Because there is this massive assumption in that phrase that the man saying it will be in the kingdom of God. And everyone around him, as Jesus can see their hearts, uh, the Pharisees sitting around the table, they are all convinced that they will be eating bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus, if some of those uh, undesirable people also are there, that's fine. But we know we're in, and so we're going we're gonna to sort of rejoice um, about that. And the Pharisees make this assumption, and it's, it's cultural for their time, but I'd argue it's also cultural for our time. So um, in those days, what they would do is they would look at themselves and say, okay, look at me, I'm educated, I'm wealthy, I'm clearly uh, blessed to be in this position, and God must take special favor on me. Like, I am above those people in the streets, and it's because God loves me more. And uh, it reminded me when I read that of something that we found when we were doing research into the church plant. And so we, uh, Country Bible, basically looked at the area they paid to have some analytics done on the people in the place we'd be planting the church. And uh, they got some demographic information and they wanted to see what, uh, you know, how would people maybe react to us planting a church in their community uh, some of the things weren't shocking. Like, it's a lot of white people. Like, that was pretty obvious. Um, could have told you that. Affluent whites, yep. Um, but then there was something sort of interesting that we found in the statistics. So we looked at it. It said, within the past six years, so since 2017, there had been a 400% increase in people who believed in multiple gods. That's puzzling. Uh, I didn't think that was based on a large and growing Hindu population in Hickman, Nebraska. Probably not. But what we could draw from that is it's probably that people in that area have gone over and are believing in, uh, in New Age beliefs. So they would mark themselves, if you have a religious spectrum, they would say, I am spiritual. You might hear someone say, well, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual. And New Age sort of takes, uh, takes from Eastern religions in some ways, and some stuff is, is more just made up to be New Age. But to just summarize uh, this belief that they have is in karma. And so just broad summary of karma. You put good things into the universe, and you get good things back out of the universe. And then you put bad things into the universe, and then bad things are going to happen to you because you put bad things into the universe. Um, 
But if that is your worldview, if that's really what you believe, then why would you serve anyone in the streets? Why would you serve anyone who is less fortunate than you? Because they clearly deserve it. You should just let them stay in their, in their punishment forever. There's no reason you don't want to ruin your own karma. Um, Jesus deals with this belief, um, not new age, but the cultural belief that those who were wealthier were somehow uh, had a special favor uh, with God that others didn't. He deals with it in John chapter 9. And this is one of my favorite uh, passages in all of scripture. I'll summarize it really quick. Uh, Jesus and his disciples are going through a town and they come across a man who was born blind. And the disciples turn to Jesus. They say, was it this man who sinned or his parents? Those are the only two options that they give Jesus because that's what they believe. Surely it was either him or his parents who sinned and he's suffering for it. And Jesus said, and I have to read this one exact because these are words I do not want to butcher. Jesus responded, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So we don't have time to unpack the depth of that passage right now, but the quick and obvious takeaway is don't let unbiblical cultural beliefs rule your thoughts, but look to the providence of God in all things. So other religions, we can draw a line sort of in the sand here. We have um, on one side is get close to God. So if you get close to God, if you're good enough, you can climb this ladder to heaven and then you will eventually, if you're good enough, reach God, whatever your God is. Maybe it's a tree, maybe it's a dog, whatever it is, you can reach him. Jesus is on the other side of the line and he's saying, you will never reach God. I have come to you. And so he takes this man's comment and he springboards into parable. I'll go ahead and read the first few verses of it. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And I got to be honest, that last one tends to get more empathy from all of us. But it might be the worst excuse of all. We'll look at that here in a minute. So, um, and I'm sure looking at this, I'm sure that these guests, if you'd asked them the week before, I'm sure that they would have said, of course, we're coming to attend the banquet. We've been looking forward to it for so long. Of course, we're looking forward uh, to going out to this wonderful party. Um, and really, they had been looking forward to it for a long time. So if we think uh, back to biblical times, it takes a long time to get a feast together. So if you were going to throw a truly amazing party or banquet, it's going to come with two invitations. So the first invitation 
go out to everyone and you say, we are going to throw a banquet. It's going to be amazing. Can I count on you to be there? And then the second invitation is the banquet has been prepared. Please come and enjoy with us. And to the Pharisees, this is sort of an exact mirroring of what their beliefs were. Because if we look way back, and I'm talking way back to the beginning of time when man first sins in the garden in Genesis 3, and the Lord's reaction is to slaughter an innocent beast to clothe the sinful nakedness of man, in doing so, he sends an invitation. He says, I am not going to be in the destruction business with all of you right now. I'm in the restoration business. I'm going to restore you, and it is going to culminate in a glorious banquet. Will you come? You're invited. I'll extend an invitation to you. And he kept sending servants, people to remind the people of Israel about this coming banquet. It captivates the majority of our Bible throughout this entire uh uh, group of scripture, and then we come to the time of the banquet when Jesus shows up, and that's the rest of scripture. But will they attend now, is the question. The kingdom of God is at hand. Will you attend? I don't think the three excuses that the men made are pivotal to the story, uh, but I think they are important. They do teach us some lessons. So we look at the first excuse. Uh, man says, I bought a field and I must go and see it. So this guy's got his real estate portfolio. He's building up. Um, his kingdom is looking real nice earthside and he can't stop looking at it. So when the invitation comes to go to this banquet, he says, I'm busy. I'm looking at my kingdom. Can't you see it? It's beautiful. And then the second excuse I bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go examine them. So if you have ever studied livestock uh, in the ancient Near East cultures, or if you've ever played um, Oregon Trail, you know, you know for a fact that a yoke of oxen is a pair of oxen. So that's two. So this guy's talking about, I have ten oxen. means he's extremely affluent. He's been blessed with a lot of cash. And what he's going to go do is he is going to go look at his things. He's going to go look at his possessions and marvel at them. And he's so infatuated with these things that he does not have any time to go to the banquet. Have you ever had something that was so nice and new that you just couldn't stop looking at it? You ever got a new iPhone and you go, Oh, did I get a text? <laughs> nope. You ever do that? I do that sometimes. But what these men is they've been so, so just fascinated with their things. They love their things. And it's caused them in their selfishness to turn away from the giver of the feast. And then we look at the third excuse. I have married a wife. Therefore, I cannot go. Pretty straightforward. Um, what he is almost guaranteed to be referring to is in Deuteronomy 24.5, God lays out the law, or Moses in this letter, but through the inspiration of God, lays out the law um, about 
marriage. And I'm going to read it off to you. And since we're talking about a wedding and it's romantic, I'm going to read it in the King James. Um, when a man hath taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. Nigh shall he be charged with any businesses, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up his wife, which he hath taken. The man takes one of the most beautiful and precious gifts that God has ever given to man, and he uses it against him. He uses it against the giver of the feast. And this is something that the Pharisees were sort of known for. They would take the law and they would distort it to mean whatever they wanted it to mean and to place them at higher places within society. They would distort the law that God gave to them and for them for His glory and make it into something that wasn't that. Um, I think there's one quote that really just sums us up very well. This is, this is from uh, John Onwachekwa, the pastor. He says, We aren't lost because God hasn't bothered to find us. We're lost because we're determined to look for lasting purpose in passing things. So ask yourself, what captivates your affections? Jesus is telling this to the Pharisees because he sees their hearts. They're infatuated with their riches and indifferent towards the God that they say they worship. Are they invited to the banquet? Of course. But they do not accept. Any of you guys ever watched The Bachelor? I know you're lying. <laughs> I know this because some of you added me to a bachelor group chat last year. And so I watched a little bit of it. And it actually correlates very well with this part of the message. So every single season on The Bachelor, it goes, there's this cadence where it goes in the same order. It's like a liturgy, if you will. And what happens is you got, um, if you haven't seen it, then that's good. You don't have to. Like, I'll just sum it up in about 30 seconds. Um, you have a bachelor and you have a bachelorette, and they have about 30 suitors that they bring for them, and they sort of speed date the people until they find out which ones they like. And then they, they begin to, to tell them things about their relationship. So they'll say, um, I like you to about 30 of them. I like you. And then as they whittle it down a little bit, they move on and they say, I have feelings for you. Like, you know, I have feelings for you, right? And then they move a little further and they say, I'm falling for you. That's the next step, um, which is the most annoying step also, because you're thinking, brother, get those banana peels off your feet and commit already. Stop falling. And then eventually they do something really embarrassing. They go to their, uh, the hometowns of the women and they visit them. And uh, the man has to ask the father for her hand in marriage. And most of the fathers do what any man should do uh, who's worth his salt. And they say, no. <laughs> you may not have my daughter's hand in marriage for a reality show. But eventually they get past it. They say, I'm falling for you, I'm falling for you. And then they have the last two, and they say, I love you. And we're at the next level, the I love you level. And there's a dramatic breakup for one of them, and one of them 
gets proposed to. They say, will you marry me? And then there's this pageantry and this fanfare, and they make it as romantic and as beautiful as possible. And you're really convinced at the end of every season that this is a legitimate love story, that these people uh, really love each other. And then consistently you find out two months afterwards, they broke up. And not just they broke up, but from the beginning, they were always just in it to be an influencer and to get big on uh, social media and Instagram and to have some fame and some fortune. Now, obviously our romantic relationship is, is not with God, but we do have a relationship with God in the most uh, pure and meaningful sense of the word relationship. And so the lesson I bring out of this is, man, don't have feelings for God. Don't have feelings for Jesus. We love him. Wed ourselves to him. Don't have feelings for Jesus. Everyone has feelings for Jesus. You ask anyone on the street if they feel good about Jesus, 99% of them are going to say, yes, I love Jesus. But they don't mean it. So love him. Ultimately, we must make that decision. I'm going to go ahead and read sort of the last half of this parable. Um, it says, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges, compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. It reminds me of sort of a corresponding verse. This is in Matthew, it's chapter 3, 8, and 9. It says, Therefore, produce fruits consistent with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. If we desire Christ, we must die to ourselves and live for him. And to die to ourselves means to sacrifice our worldly kingdoms and service to God, to tell him that whatever he would have us do, uh, Jesus is always worth it. Guests who made the excuses were invited, but as this passage says, they shall never taste his banquet. And yet we turn ourselves to the others. We see a completely different story. The servant is sent out first to the streets to invite the undesirable people, people who are blind, poor, lame, and crippled. And I'll tell you, these people are easy to look down on, but they sure do understand reality better than almost anyone else. They understand grace when they see it. And that's what this invitation is. This invitation is grace. God's grace to a broken and a sinful people. And His grace doesn't stop with the people in the streets. The servant is sent to the highways and to the hedges and this is to say, uh, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And I always get excited when it says Gentiles in the Bible, because that's us. 
He's come also to us. And even as we sit by the roadside and we're blind and lame and crippled and poor, we receive this invitation of grace. We're summoned to the king's table. And not just as a one-time thing, but as an eternal guest and a family member, a chosen people. I have a favorite word, actually, in this passage. My favorite word is compel. He compels the servant. The servant says, I compel them to come. He doesn't suggest, it's not a, a light, you know, come on if you, if you can. He compels them to come. He desires the presence of all those in the streets, of all those in the hedges and along the highways. The master of the feast desires your presence. He wants you to join this feast because of the ultimate joy that he knows is only found in him. William Barclay is a, a Scottish theologian, and he said this about feasts, about attending feasts. It is a most significant thing that Jesus thought of the kingdom in terms of a feast. We must always remember this. There's no healthy pleasure which is forbidden to the Christian, for a Christian is like a man who is forever at a wedding feast. Another pastor, Kevin DeYoung, sums it up well. He says, the question every grateful Christian should ask is this, why was I made to hear God's voice? Be given a place at his table. Be made a part of his family. So back in sort of more traditional times and really traditional churches, all of the hymns that they would sing on the day of the sermon would be about the passage. And there's one that I find particularly beautiful, and it's about this uh, passage in Luke chapter 14. It's called, How Sweet and Awful is the Place. And of course it means full of awe. It doesn't mean awful is the place. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within the doors. While everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Twas the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in, else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Pity the nations, O our God, constrain the earth to come. Send thy victorious word abroad and bring the stranger home. And in closing, I want to draw our attention to the servant. And as Jesus is telling this parable, uh, the servant is nameless. But we can be so thankful to know his name today. The servant's name is Jesus. And to be a follower of Jesus is to not simply attend the banquet, but to show up to the banquet and surrender at the feet of the master of the house. To tell a master, I am here, please take me as your servant. Send me wherever you desire and I will go. From the streets and the lanes of the city to the highways and the hedges that your banquet may be full. His invitation is grace. 
Will you accept this invitation to the feast? It says in Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. Will you endure the trials of this world and fix your affections upon Jesus? And to all that do, there is a great feast. And all of us will have a seat at the table if we accept that invitation. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we, thankful for, we thank you for sending this message to us. We thank you for all that we find in Scripture. And most of all, we just thank you for making us a desired guest at your feast, not because of anything that we've ever done, but because of you and because of your grace. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for allowing us to be a part of your household, even though we're not deserving of such an honor. We thank you, Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone here who has not decided to follow you, Lord, with all their heart, that they do so, and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.